0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.com. Again, that is cbtseminary.org.
1: The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Dr. Carter, we were uh, cut off briefly because of our recording software. Can you continue your thought on uh, atheism, where you were at in our last question?
2: Okay, so we were talking about, I was talking about metaphysics and how Greek metaphysics uh, was a new thing in the world. And it was saying that that when Greek metaphysics met the Christian doctrine of God, that you had the intellectual explosion that caused Western civilization. So I just wanted to then come back to Augustine. and. And talk about the phrase. Why I use the phrase Christian Platonism? What I'm getting at there. So Augustine realizes when he when he interacts with the uh, the uh, philosophers of his day. So the Epicureans are are like deists. They uh, they 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 say, well, if there are any gods, they're not concerned about us. So they're practical, functional atheists. Uh, you've got Democritus and Lucretius, the the atomists, and you've got a lot of that. You've got a lot of uh, uh, people. Um, who don't believe in any gods at all. A lot of these, especially the intellectual, educated people, uh, the, the the common people tended to be superstitious. The educated people tended to be skeptical. Um, and so, out of all the the groups that um, the Christians could talk to in terms of having any kind of dialogue, the Platonists were the ones who at least had uh, some sense of a of a transcendent God, an immaterial. Um, first principle of some kind behind the universe that makes the universe have order and structure. So the Platonists is a very broad term. It includes uh, Socrates and Plato. It includes Aristotle. It includes the middle Platonists, the skeptics, the, the, the academics. I mean, it includes neoplatonism, which was the kind of Platonism that was dominant in Augustine's time. Uh, Plotinus died in 270, and Augustine is flourishing around 400. And um, Augustine knows the works of Plotinus. And when he talks about the works of the books of the Platonists that helped him in the Book 7 of the Confessions, he, he's probably talking about the Aeneids, the uh, the books written by Plotinus. So why did the why did Augustine engage with the Platonists? Well, because they, they believed that The universe has order and structure and meaning and can be understood rationally and this fit with augustine's idea understanding of creation that god created the world with order and structure and he created according to his word in genesis um and in 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 john one which is a kind of a a, a revisiting of genesis one the word by which god created is the logos and so it was very common for fourth century christian theology to understand god to have created the world through christ he created the world through his his word through his logos and um and and they would even see the the word uh, the creative word of god in genesis 1 as the you know as the as this the second person of the Trinity and the spirit hovering over the waters in verse two is the spirit these so, so that they understand the creation of the world in a Trinitarian way. So, so what you have, so what, what we, you have in the city of God is a, is a back and forth between Augustine and the Platonists. He, um, he's grateful to Platonism because they helped him get out of Manichaeanism. Manichaeanism had a materialistic notion of God. And in the, in the Confessions, he explains how the books of the Platonists helped him. They, they gave him the concept of an immaterial substance, and he hadn't had that concept before. And once he had the concept of an immaterial substance, that is, something that was not physical, but real. That was the part he couldn't grasp before. As a Manichaean, he could see how something could be real if it was physical, um, but if it was not physical, he couldn't see how it could have any reality, and so he was stuck with a materialistic concept of God as a Manichaean, as a not, uh, and 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 it was the Platonic concept of an immaterial substance that helped him to break free of that Manichaeanism and to see that the biblical be might be possible because what the what the what ambrose was preaching what the church was preaching in augustine's day when he was on the verge of becoming a christian what the church was preaching was that god is not material he's not a part of the cosmos but he's real in fact he's more real than the cosmos he is the source of of the cosmos he's the one who created all things and and once augustine through the help of the platonists was able to see how that was possible, he became a Christian, 386. He's baptized, and as they say, the rest is history. So as he's writing his City of God, he's interacting with the Platonists, and he has a lot of good things to say about them and a lot of bad things to say about them. And his biggest criticism of them is that they they, um, they don't become Christians. Now, many of them did, but uh, many of the Platonists, like Justin Martyr back in the second century, when they heard the gospel they had been prepared for the gospel and they they embraced it gladly many platonists did that but many other platonists refused to accept the gospel and basically augustine's arguing with them so what augustine ends up with is something that i call christian platonism that is christianized platonism because he discusses in the city of god so what is it that the platonists believe that's true and he lists those things and then he said, well, what, where do they... But he says, these things I did not find in the books of the Platonist. And that these things he's referring to in that passage are basically what the incarnation, uh, the, that God, you know, became man in Jesus Christ and the whole gospel, the whole idea of sin and salvation and the whole idea of becoming uh, a, new per, a new creature in Christ and and having your mind renewed by Christ and being sanctified and made holy... And all of that is what the Platonists, the Platonists could not provide it, anybody. And that is what comes from Christianity. So he basically says, you know, the Platonists have got have got part of the way to the truth, and they've raised all, a lot of the right questions, and they see the need, but they can't meet the need. You have to have, in order for the person to really be fulfilled, the person has to embrace Christianity, embrace the Bible, embrace Christ. And so he so so what I, I call his Is metaphysics Christian Platonism. And in Christian Platonism, uh, the creature-creator distinction is fundamental. Creation ex nihilo is a fundamental principle of metaphysics. And that in turn means that the being of God is not an extension of the being of the cosmos. And that means that the only way to speak about the being of God is analogically. So you can't speak about it univocally So that when you say God's being and human beings, for instance, when we say, I am as a man, I am a father and God is a father, father there cannot be univocal, can't mean exactly the same thing. For God to be father as it means for me to be father. But if it was equivocal, uh, then there'd be no overlap in meaning at all. There'd be no point in calling God father. We'd be communicating nothing. So the middle way between a univocal understanding of language and an equivocal understanding is analogical understanding so there is something about being a father that is common to both human fathers and god not there's far more about fatherhood that is not common to the two but there is a point of analogy and that's the only way we can talk about god we can talk about god analogically all christian language about god is analogical in nature so um, that's bit. That's the, so. The, the essence of it. Is, so when we when we talk about Christian metaphysics or Nicene metaphysics or the nice the metaphysics of the great tradition or Christian Platonism, what we are not talking about, we do not mean that we reinterpret Christian theology in terms of a Neoplatonic worldview. That's not what we're doing. That's actually more what the Arians were doing. But what we are doing is we are, we are critiquing and breaking down the uh, Greek metaphysical idea of Neoplatonism, and we're taking some of those ideas on board, we're rejecting others, and we're modifying still others, so that what we end up with is a—we're um, a, 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 using metaphysics in a ministerial rather than a magisterial way in, in theology— as we as we talk about god so that's what i think christian metaphysics is christian platonism is um, and that's what i'm trying to do. I think that's, that's what the great tradition has done from augustine his influence was massive on the middle ages and the and the greatest theologian of the middle ages was thomas aquinas um, and and his influence on on the reform, on the reform scholasticism was massive And, um, you know, as a confessional Protestant, uh, what I understand uh, to be uh, the Orthodox tradition is, um, you know, basically comes to its peak in in 16th, 17th century uh, Reformed Orthodoxy. And then things go off the rails in the Enlightenment. And today what we need to do is recover um, the, uh, the, the, the Reformed Scholasticism of the 17th. Uh, century and and when we do that, we will be recovering the the Thomistic understanding of God and the, the, the Christian Platonism of Augustine and the Nicene Orthodox view of God and and so on. So that's that's what my project is all about.
1: What are the practical implications for holding to Christian Platonism uh, in preaching, apologetics, and in Christian discipleship?
2: Oh, well, for apologetics, um, I would recommend that people read Edward phaser, The Last Superstition, um, a refutation of the new atheism. That is a terrific book, um, because Faser, uh does apologetics, I think, in the light of the great tradition and in, 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 in the way that, that I think it needs to be done, as opposed to a kind of apologetics that situates itself within the, the liberal project and tries to be, uh, tries to, in, instead of going for a conservative version of modernity, he's undermining modernity completely and recovering a pre-modern uh, metaphysics. Um, another author who is uh, doing something very similar from a, from a confessional reform perspective is J.V. Fesco in his recent book, um, Reforming Apologetics. And uh, what Fesco is saying in that book is just so important and so valuable. So I think practically from, from an apologetics point of view, it's important to um, to, uh, um, to follow what they're doing as opposed to a, an evidentialist kind of an apologetic, which I think is uh, conceding far too much to, uh, to modernity. Um, practically speaking, well, one practical implication of all this is one of as i from my perspective i would say one of the biggest problems we have in trying to be orthodox in the 21st century is that we are we are not knowledgeable enough about greek philosophy i think that every pastor to get into seminary should have the equivalent of a minor in philosophy which should include Serious study of Greek philosophy and some medieval and modern, but the Greek philosophy is essential. It's so foundational. Um, Also, a course in logic, traditional Aristotelian logic, and a course in ethics. I think that should be expected and required of all entering MDiv students. Um, I think that that if we did that, um, and if we then we would be prepared to study. Uh, reform scholasticism. The problem is if, if you try to study reform scholastic, scholasticism now uh, without any knowledge of Aquinas or of Plato, or Aristotle and, and Augustine, um, you're not going to really understand it. And, and I think that the problem is that many people have have bought into the critique of 17th century scholasticism that it's rationalistic and aristotelian and sub-christian and it can all be dismissed and that we should just read our bible and interpret the bible uh and and we don't need all this philosophy and stuff and i think that we're susceptible to believing that because we don't really understand what's going on so on a practical level I think seminaries need to do a good, a better job, and individual pastors, regardless of what seminaries do, really need to understand Greek philosophy. They need to understand their every all all systematic theology is really built on a foundation of knowing five authors. You need to know Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, and Calvin. If you know those five authors, um, you've got a shot. Uh, reform scholasticism, and and you can become critical of modernity, but you really need to know those five authors. And that would be the practical implication of what I'm saying.
0: Dr. Carter, um... You kind of alluded to this, so I'm going to go ahead and go to the next question. How can pastors recover the genius? That would be go back and read the people who you have suggested. Um, How can pastors begin to help their congregations to read the Bible in this way that you set out in your book? Because your book's more towards pastors, but how can we help our congregations?
2: Well, um, in our local church, we have about 500 people. And um, for the past four years now, my wife and I have been doing serious teaching of lay people with that very question in mind. So what we have done is um, my wife was teaching a Bible study on Monday morning using a inductive Bible study method. Okay. It was basically K. Arthur precepts Bible ministries. She was doing it more, more in depth, but it was, it was, Basically the inductive study method where you we where you teach people to observe the text and uh, the way we do it is we take the text and we print out um, say the passage we're studying uh, in a double spaced format with wide margins and we we print it out and we give it just the text to the to the to to the students and and we and we tell the and we teach them how to observe so we spent a whole year uh, teaching hermeneutics, basically, teaching them observation, interpretation, application, that whole method. Um, and, but, but most of the focus was on observation, teaching people to look at key words, to, to look at the, uh, the structure of the passage, to look at the, um, the, the metaphors and images that are used to just to observe what is in the text. To see what the text actually says. And that can be done. Lay people can do that. The second step is interpretation, and interpretation really needs means putting the passage in its context. So the passage always has multiple contexts. So there the passage of a parable might be a series of parables, but it also might be Matthew. But it also might be the New Testament. It also might be the Bible as a whole. Now at this point, you run into a uh, um, an issue and and that is that most people don 't know the Bible as a whole well enough to put individual passages into the biblical canonical context so the second year, um, Bonnie began to do a study of the old testament we we took a, we, we got a Bible college level. Introduction to the Old Testament, and she does about twenty women on Tuesday night. I do twenty men on Thursday night, and we basically teach people the Old Testament. Um, what we have discovered over the last few years is that lay people are hungry to study the Bible. They are capable of studying the Bible, and they they need they need a class where there where a lot is expected of them they need they need teachers who will not coddle them and baby them but who will take attendance we have textbooks assign reading expect the homework to be done etc um we've been doing all this and we've been getting a response we've been, people have not dropped away they've they've continued and we've it's been two and a half years now and I've gone all the way through the old testament One of the things that we've discovered, though, in this process is um, it's how the context in which you place the passage. Here is where modern hermeneutics is is very problematic because the context is for, for for the historical study of the Bible since the Enlightenment, the main context that determines the meaning is the reconstructed historical situation that is, so to speak, behind the text. What, what, What did the people in that culture believe? What was the historical background that was going on? And that context, the reconstructed historical context becomes decisive for the meaning of the text. The text really means what it means in that context. That's not true. Uh, I, hate, I hate to tell you what 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 you can what you can get by doing that. It may be of some help in some cases to reconstruct the historical context. But you know there are two sources for reconstructing the historical context or background of a passage: the Bible itself and non-biblical uh, academic disciplines like archaeology, philology, history, anthropology, etc. What I th- what I'm coming to believe more and more is that the Bible itself gives us the context in which to understand the biblical text. So why, for example, do we have four passages of prose history like material in the middle of 66 chapters, which are mostly poetry in the book of Isaiah 36 chapters, 36 to 39, um, are historical and narrative. Why? Why are they there? They're right there between the two sections of the book. Uh, one is looking back to the uh, the, um, uh, the crisis with the Assyrians, and one is looking forward to the Babylonians. Um, obviously, they're meant to give us the context in which we are to interpret the rest of the Book of Isaiah. So. I think that the the most important context. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying the history is not important. There's all kinds of history in the Bible. That the Bible contains a lot of history, and that and and that should be our clue that the history that the Bible contains is the co- historical context in which we ought to be interpreting the text. So I don't really see the canonical and the historical context as in in conflict with each other necessarily, unless. Unless what you do is you deny the truth of all the biblical history, and then you go out and reconstruct a new history that is in conflict with the biblical history that becomes the new context in which you interpret the context, the meaning of the passage. Um, So just a quick example. Um, My my men couldn't understand why we were talking about the, the documentary hypothesis. They could not get their minds around why it was important to study J-D-E-P. Why did anybody come up with this theory, they, they kept asking. And how does this help us to understand the Bible, they kept asking. See, the, the problem is that Walhausen, he said, you know, the Bible presents, the Old Testament prophets says, coming along and on the basis of the law of Moses, calling Israel to come back to obedience to the law. The Bible, the Old Testament, presents the law of Moses first, and as if Israel was knew the law and was disobeying the law, and then the prophets come along and say, stop disobeying, start obeying the law. But Wellhausen said, that's not how it happened. Actually, nothing in Israel is his, is historical prior to the, the exile. Um, a few things are, but basically the the, the Pentateuch was created... The the priestly material is from the exile, and the priestly redaction of the whole thing is from the exile. So the the prophets were the true founders of Israel. The prophets come first, the law comes second. But that completely reverses the way that the Old Testament understands itself and presents itself. So the bottom line is that the knowledge that lay people need is not historical critical. What they need is to know the whole Bible as well as they possibly can. They need teaching on the Bible. What basically what I'm talking about is is what Gerhardus Voss is talking about in terms of biblical theology. That's what that's what lay people need. They need as much knowledge of biblical theology as they can get, because when they come to that second step of observation and interpretation. The more biblical theology they understand, the better job they will do of interpreting the, um, the, the text. Uh, one other point that I wanna make, and I know I'm going on a long time, but I hope this is somewhat interesting. Um, the, uh, the, the, um, the business of application I think is, is problematic. The way it's presented oftentimes is that application is what we do. After we've established what the text means, we then decide how it should be applied i think that's that's not that's not the way it works the as we've studied the bible with our our groups over the past four years application is the work of the holy spirit and application happens as you are busy in the work of observation and interpretation it happens without you as the interpreter consciously deciding okay now it's time for application applications just come to you as the spirit impresses on your mind that you ought to worship this one that you're you've just described this god that you have just described or you ought to change your behavior because the scripture tells you that this is wrong and something else is right the application part comes as a result of of uh, of of understanding what the text is saying what God is saying through the text so I think the so fundamentally what I'm saying to you is that we use a modified inductive Bible study method but we find that the biggest problem with using, with getting people to study the Bible for themselves and learn it for themselves and and have God speak to them and change their lives through it the biggest problem is, Although it's fairly easy to teach them to do the observation part, it's that putting it into the biblical context that we're where it's really difficult. And there's no, you know, we say to them, there's good news and bad news. The good news is if y- you can understand the Bible, bad news is it's gonna take you major effort for the rest of your life to do it well. There's no shortcut. It's not easy. Um it, Paul says somewhere, if he will not work, he shall not eat. And we, we interpret that spiritually as meaning that, um, look, if you don't work at studying the Bible, you will not feast on the living word. You, you've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. Um, and this is, this is the whole thing, that, uh, the whole theory behind, the, you know, the, the daily quiet time or the, the catechism or the, any form of Bible study that we do. Um, we have to submit ourselves to God by studying his word. And as we do that, he has promised that he will open our eyes of our spiritual understanding. He will he'll speak to us and he'll transform us in this process. Uh, but we can't just sit around waiting for lightning to strike. We've got to, we've got to get, a, get, get into the Bible and study. But the good news is that you don't have to have a PhD in ancient Semitic languages and archaeology. In order to make sense of the Bible. The good news is that the Bible itself is given in such a way that it makes sense. The more you study it, the more you understand the interconnections. It is one book. It does have one theme and it does make sense. So that would be the practical implication of, of what I'm saying. I'm kind of working on both ends, uh, the high high <laughs> theoretical level and the, the low end practical application level at the same time. And I'm finding that is extremely helpful in thinking through hermeneutics. Uh,
1: Our last question for uh, our episode is, can you give us an example of reading a passage with the great tradition, like the one you provide in your book on Isaiah 53?
2: Well, uh, there's several different kinds of examples that we could look at. Um, So there are cases where there are passages like Hosea eleven one and Matthew one twenty three, for example, where you have a, a text and you have an Old Testament text that is being interpreted by a New Testament apostle in a way that seems strange to us. So, um, so there's there's that. Uh, we could also go to um, an um, a text that um, that. You know, say a psalm, for example, that is not interpreted by the New Testament apostles uh, in in as as referring to Christ simply because it doesn't get mentioned. It doesn't happen to get mentioned. Not all 150 psalms are mentioned, um, and we could do that. So let me talk about the Hosea 11 one. Essential issue here is that the mo- the apostles are models for Old Testament interpretation. So it's not like, you know, I had a professor, Richard Longnecker, uh, back in the day, who said, basically, look, the apostles were inspired, and they could interpret the Old Testament this way, but don't you try to do that, because you're not inspired. And it's like, kids, don't try this at home. Um, But the, I don't think that's right. I I think the reason why, I think the, the, the up, Apostolic interpretive is uh, illustrative, and it's a model. It's not a, a unique thing to the apostles. Okay, so Hebrew, Hosea 1.1. 1. Matthew 2.15 says that um, the flight of the holy family to Egypt and the return uh, after uh, Joseph is instructed by an angel to go and that he's instructed to come back after the death of Herod. And it says, this is done to fulfill the word of the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, what Matthew is saying is that this incident in the life of Jesus fulfills an Old Testament passage. And he quotes Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, anybody who reads Hosea 11.1 said, well, that's talking about the Exodus, obviously. That's talking about uh, God calling Israel out of Egypt in the in Exodus 1 to 15 that's true but Matthew says that Jesus fulfills it and i could imagine somebody say well i didn't even know that it needed to be fulfilled i thought it already had been fulfilled in the exodus so but Matthew thinks there's more meaning in the text so if we think about hosea the prophet what was in his mind? I mean, I think when, the, uh, when biblical scholars study Hosea 11.1 1, and, they, and they ask that question, what was in Hosea's mind when he wrote that, uh, they're pretty unanimous that he, he had in mind the Exodus. He, very, it's, not, it's not immediately obvious that, he's, that this is talking about something that is future. And yet it's obvious to Matthew. So why is that? I think part of the issue here is that um, if we understand how the Old Testament prophets understood the, the the messianic hope in general, we understand that central to the message of the prophets was the failure of Israel. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Israel was called to be the shining city on a hill. Israel was called to to take the truth of of Yahweh and proclaim it to the nations, to to live out the the law in such a way that the nations would be drawn to Jerusalem to find out uh, how to live a life that is successful and happy and glorious like they were doing. But Israel, instead of doing what it was called to do, instead of obeying obeying the law and keeping the covenant and being the the light to the nations, uh, Israel... Uh, fails in all of that and sins, and goes against, breaks the covenant, goes against the law. So the problem is, how is God going to keep His covenant promises and use Israel to to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that back Genesis twelve one to three? How is He going to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham? And the prophets understand. Gradually come more and more to understand it. in both the prophets and the Psalms, we, come, we see the idea arising of one who will arise out of Israel, a descendant of David, who will become, who will do what Israel failed to do. And this becomes a motif all through the life of, of Christ. So you see it, for example, in him going out into the desert and being tempted for 40 days. As Israel was in the desert for forty days, forty years, but whereas Israel failed and gave into the temptation repeatedly, Christ passes the test he he resists the temptation, quotes the word of God to the devil, does not sin and uh and and, and so there, there, I could go on and on about the servant in isaiah and and so on and so forth but but in general, the prophets i think have this sense that the Messiah is going to sum up Israel in himself and do for Israel what Israel failed to do and be what Israel failed to be and accomplish the mission that Israel had failed to accomplish. And that's what the New Testament is all about. It's all about Christ uh, doing that. So when Matthew reflects on the fact that as Israel was brought out of Egypt, so Jesus is brought out of Egypt. He is seeing a pattern in the Old Testament that was deliberately placed there by God that wasn't just a recital of historical events, but was a pattern that God intended to to fulfill. There's a sense in which, even though do and be everything that God's will is nevertheless uh, not going to be ultimately frustrated that Israel is going to be everything he promised, but it's going to happen in Christ. And then the new Israel will be those who are incorporated into Christ, who is the true Israel, and those who put their faith in him are part of it, and those who reject him, whether they're Jew or Gentile by ethnicity, uh, whether they accept or reject Christ, whether they are incorporated into the Messiah, determines their status in in the true Israel. Uh, but but that kind of dinette—it's it's that kind of theological context that we have to interpret uh, Hosea 11:1 in, and that, and Matthew's doing it, and we need to learn from Matthew. So what we should we should think about Hosea 11:1 is kind of a, a way that is treated in Matthew's sort of a signal, sort of a reminder, sort of hey people, okay, when you're reading the prophets, keep in mind that what they see Israel being called to do and failing to do, the Messiah does all that. And the Messiah has accomplished what God intended the Messiah to accomplish, what God intended Israel to accomplish. And so the t- true Israel now is in the Messiah. And that's why the temple can be destroyed. And that's why the, Paul thinks he has a, a mission to the Gentiles because the Messiah has come, he's suffered, he's died, he's re- he rose again, and now he has sent his apostles into the world to preach the message that all those who put their faith and trust in the Messiah are, are in fact now part of the true israel and that in that true israel god is intending to bring about the all the blessings that he promised abraham and david so yeah that's that's how i would i would go at. It. in other words you you cannot just in an atomistic way look at the text alone in a naturalistic fashion see it as the human author's intention only and then make that jump to matthew it just doesn't work that way you've got to see it in the context of the of the overall, um, of the overall uh, uh, biblical theology. I see we're coming close to the end of our time, so I guess we need to wrap it up.
1: Well, uh, Dr. Carter, we want to thank you for joining the Covenant podcast today to discuss these topics. Uh, Jimmy and I just want to thank you again.
2: Well, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are confessional, Baptist, affordable, accessible, and accredited. You can learn more about them at cbtseminary.org. That is cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, Head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.